0: Hey everyone, Uh, welcome back So first things first, uh, just a bit of, uh, I guess, housekeeping I've decided to change the podcast name I guess it's not too late to do that now I just started and besides, only probably 10 of you are listening to it right now So I decided to change it because it turns out there are other people with a similar podcast name And obviously I want to stand out So uh, the new podcast name is called J. Kim's Topic Again, J-Kim's Jay topic, J-A-Y-Kim, K-I-M, apostrophe S, topic, T-O-P-I-C. I hope you know how to spell topic at least. But anyway, um, so welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today's episode, or today's season rather, well, this season coming up is on video games. Uh, I'm going to approach it similarly, similarly to uh, soccer. And with soccer, I kind of approached it as not just as a fan, but also as an objective viewer and what it means to be an objective viewer and why do I invest my emotion and time into this playing it and watching it so I want to do something similar with video games because it's not really a fad but it's become a legitimate subculture or even a culture on its own because you know, kind of like soccer, you, you can go to another foreign country and then if you meet someone who plays video games you can just communicate just like that, you might even use the same lingo and you guys could probably speak a different language So that being said, I'm interested in something that's widespread, such as video games. And today's episode, I'm gonna sort of introduce what I want to talk about for the majority of the season. But I also want to focus on one video game in particular, just to kind of give you a taste of... I guess good video games, controversial games, or even... um, Games that really defined the video game genre. Not just defined, but I mean... For me at least, sort of reminding me that video games can be art too, or that video games is art. I mean, there's a lot of debate about that. Well, there isn't really a lot of debate, but it is still an interesting topic that people still like to talk about and bring up. Because are video games art? I mean, that's up to you, but I tend to lean towards to say that it is art. And I think Bioshock, the Bioshock series, I'm going to talk about the first game and Infinite. Definitely reconceptualized my understanding of video games and what you could do with them in terms of storytelling, writing, graphics, gameplay, what what have you. So yeah. So first things first. So why video games? Why get into video games over you know another hobby that could have been a little more productive, like songwriting or finding a job or, <laughs> or playing more soccer? I don't know, but you know when you live in Canada and you spend six months of the year indoors video games becomes it becomes the thing for you especially if you're not someone who might not enjoy outdoor activities I mean I love I love being outdoors I love nature I love going out I mean you you know to me you can never go wrong with those options but when it's minus 30 and and there's 30 centimeters of snow that that's fun for like a week until you I mean a week is a long time for a lot of people for me a week is about my maximum because after that I will start craving you know a nice poutine to eat indoors or you know a fireplace but then again you need winter to enjoy those things that being said going back to video games I think that's why I love video games because during those times it's really where else where else else are you gonna go Video games transport you to different worlds and different parts of the planet or different parts of the imagination of the universe, you know? Like, you you no longer stay indoors and feeling trapped from the elements. You get to explore. You get to travel, at least mentally. It It will never be the same as actual traveling, but it is somewhat of a break. You know what I mean? Like, especially in a time of pandemic, you know, playing video games has become the ultimate escape. But playing too much of it, I mean, you don't want to do that. But as a you know as a young kid i i remember the first time i played video games i was probably 5 and my cousin he had a snes the super nintendo entertainment system it's like the old school one where you have to blow the cartridge and blow the thing and pop that plastic shit into the into the console and the first game we played that he introduced me to was uh, super mario you know the side scroller go from point a to point b get the princess the princess is not here because you know bowser took her way to the next castle and you do that for like a hundred maps so mario ran like a hundred japanese game show maps to save one girl <laughs> except that he could die and and i remember playing that i remember being just so hooked i was like i need to get to the end of this i got to the end of the first map and i, and I was like oh there's more and then my cousin was like i'm at level 30 and i'm like what the fuck is 30? I'm, I'm 5. I don't know what 30 means. I was like, well, what are you talking about? And and I got hooked. I was like, okay, there's an end to this. I got to reach that end. And I never reached the end until, like, maybe I was, like, 10 or 12 when I probably beat the game after one really long lo- uh, road trip with the family. And another game that got me super hooked was uh, Duck Hunter. Duck Hunter was the shit at that time because wireless technology... Was reserved for the remote control only, the the brick of a cell phone that people used to have. Like that was no, that was like the extent of wireless technology and the radio, of course. But like, that was pretty much it. And Duck Hunters, basically, you have your controller that is plugged to the to the console. But when you aim it at the screen, it's kind of like a Wii. Today's Wii, you can aim and shoot, and you can see the crosshairs as you aim. And I, I don't think you get to see the crosshairs. Actually, there's no crosshairs. Now that I think of it. But it's still the fact that you get to aim and shoot with a gun while pointing at a screen at that time in like, late 90s, early 2000s, that was not a thing, so to me that was mind-blowing. Whenever this game came out, I at the time thought it came out the year before, but I think that Sandy S has been around since early 90s, I think. I I could be wrong, I I decided not to look it up because I kind of don't care enough, I just know it's an old thing. Okay, so this season, when it comes to the video games, I'm obviously gonna talk about my opinions why i like the game but i'll also provide certain objective talking points about the games that we will be talking about because a lot of these games have some of them have you know big applause big praises across the board everyone loves the game everyone bought it the game developers made millions of dollars and then they use that money to make new games to further abuse their workers but you know that's capitalism and there's no point in complaining about it because it is what it is anyway so for this season and specifically also for this episode is i want to talk about video games not in terms of the games itself or talk about the details of video games or you know I i will be celebrating video games but it's more about how it impacted video game culture and just north american culture in general i suppose for example In this episode i'll talk about the stories first the narrative of the game and then i'll talk about the religious aspect the cult aspect or its uh, impact on mainstream society and video game culture and how bioshock has shifted certain game trends or our understanding of video game as art let's say uh so these are some of the things that we'll go over and we'll talk about in this episode and not only in this episode but also in future episodes I'll be talking about mostly the story, examining the story, and kind of giving a recap of the story of each game. But at the same time, talking about, well, obviously, giving my input, of why I like the game and what resonated with me, but also things that a lot of the people or the greater audience or the market didn't really like about certain aspects of the game or what, what are things that they like, or how, maybe in, in other words, how did these games impact? Video game culture as a whole And I think these games have impacted video game cultures Or reconceptualized How gamers and average gamers And even casual mainstream gamers uh, View video games The way we approach video games now Because of these games like Bowershock Has really It has changed the way we view games Essentially But but The point is is that these games Whether people loved it or hated it, it It resonated with them it was like emotionally whether positively or negatively it resonated with the market very emotionally and i found that fascinating and it says a lot about the power of games maybe people would say you know people would still react the same way towards movies or tv shows or novels fair enough very true but video games is the thing that we tend to quickly dismiss it being like oh it's an addictive thing that's why people are freaking out over it i was like no there's actual beautiful art and story happening behind these games that People are invested into these games as people were invested in Game of Thrones You know, the, the video game community is very similar, except everyone's just doing it on their own Whereas Game of Thrones, it became a very communal thing towards the end of its series But, you know, video games, it becomes communal online It's just a different kind of community, It, tra- it you know, it's just different Okay, so, as I said earlier, I'll be talking about Bioshock And I'm gonna kinda explain specifically why I decided to start off with Bioshock. Uh, earlier I alluded to saying that it really reconceptualized how I view video games as art or as philosophy. And I thought... every time I talk about Bowershock to people who... who played the video game, it's always... it's always a really fascinating con- conversation because the game is so... there's so much philosophy packed into the games. Because the guy, Ken Levine, the guy who wrote the game, Went to uh, Vassar College, which is a liberal arts college where you go to train. You know, you go there to become an author. Essentially, I think Anthony Bourdain went to Vassar for a while. Uh, I could be wrong, but but this game, the, the series of Bioshock, really has conceptualized can video games be art? What is what is art? Do we can we now include video games into art? And that's kind of what I want to get at at the end. But I but at the same time, I'm aware that I have my limits. When it comes to art or what is art, everyone has their own opinion, you know. Now I'm thinking about it. I just think about the James Franco line, and this is the end. Or he just points out everything is art. You see that chair? That's art. You see that painting? That's art. You see this joint? Someone ruled it. That's art. He said something like that, which I don't. I don't want to do that. <laughs> that's not what I want to do. That's that's an easy way out, but. But I'm gonna talk about it within again the parameters of what I understand. And a lot of you may have a different opinion or might even disagree with what I'm saying. And that's fine, you know, we're here to have a oh, we're here to have a one way conversation with me to you, and you just listen and take it. But <laughs> but at the end of the day, I want you to at least internalize a conversation that we're having. If maybe you do have a rebuttal or something, you know, you might disagree, reach out to me and we could talk about it. You know, that's that's a cool thing to do. Okay. So let's get into Bioshock. So obviously I'm going to talk about the story, but I'm not going to go into great details because if some of you have played the game, you don't need me to you know to talk about the great details. But if you haven't played a game and you may not be a gamer, I encourage you to play this game. Um, it's it's This is the craziest gateway game for anyone to start playing video games through. But if you like someone, if you enjoy, you know, good storytelling or good writing, I suggest you play the first one. Is it creepy? Yes. Is it tense? Yes. Does it get scary? Y- yes, it does. Like, one memorable part of this game is one moment you see a dead body on the floor, you turn away, you look back, the dead body's gone. That happens, and it has haunted my dreams for a little while, but it's still a fascinating game. <laughs> this is the worst way to sell a game. but <laughs> it's I love it. Okay, so, Bioshock. So the game starts in the 60s, and you play this guy named Jack. Jack is on a plane. We don't know where he's going. And then the cutscene starts with a plane crashing in the ocean and you wake up. And you, you play as Jack. You wake up in the ocean and you see a lighthouse before you. And all you do, all the game tells you to do is that that's when you take control. And you just go forward towards that lighthouse. The game doesn't, the only thing the game tells you is get to the lighthouse. And that's it, you just get there. Once you get there, you enter this bathysphere, which is like a submarine. And it takes you to the underwater city of Rapture. Now, Rapture is obviously not Atlantis nor a f- and obviously not a real city, but it is a conceptual city that is greatly inspired by Anne Ryan's um, book, Anne Ryan's book Atlas Shrugged. And if you've read the book or understand at least a little bit of Anne Ryan's Anne Ryan? Anne Ryan's fa- philosophy, then you'll understand where kind of where this book goes. But Rapture is founded by a guy named Andrew Ryan, who's a biz- big business magnet and he wanted to build a city that was completely unhinged from mainstream political or social uh, views or social systems, let's say he rejects uh, democracy, then rejects communism, and then rejects uh, religion uh, organized religion, but specifically I mean all religions, but very specifically the hierarchy of religions such as the Roman Catholic Church saying that they're all inefficient, they're all corrupt they only serve to for the interests of the few and not for the many. Andrew Ryan is not a communist. I know that sounds like a very communist thing to say, but he's more of a... He's a objectivism. He prescribes objectivism where there's no such thing as religion, all that abstract shit, that's a waste of time. Everything before you is real. Everything tangible in front of you is real. So you have this one life, go all out. That's kind of what Rapture is. So Rapture is... A city kind of founded on the concept of libertarianism where anyone could do whatever you want. There are no limits. If you want to explore the furthest limits of science, do it. If you want to explore the furthest limits of art, do it. And it invites all these intellectual elites from the surface to come to Rapture and just explore intellectually, artistically, what have you. So obviously with no limits, you can see where this goes. And... And also, being a businessman, he's also trying to find ways to make money, right? And he wants this idea that everyone that lives in the city does whatever they want, but also can make as much money as they want, as long as you don't hurt or impose on other people. Uh, very libertarian ideas. But obviously, if you maintain mainstream capitalist system, when you're trying to, you know, disrupt from the entire world by You know, running to the bottom, swimming to the bottom of the ocean, it's going to follow you. Certain problems are going to follow you. And what ends up happening really quickly is the city falls into a civil war between the poor and the elites. Because as everyone starts out as equal, but over time, it seems like the citizens become stratified through different economic classes. And it kind of what you see is sort of class beef or class revolution, you know, class conflict and you enter rapture as this is happening (laughs) it's a recipe for disaster so you as jack you get there you find a radio and a guy talks to you his name is atlas and he's telling you to do all these things and he's saying he's telling you to do all these things for you to escape the city long story short as you dive as you run seemingly deeper and deeper into the city you start unraveling some of the fucked up shit that's happening. For example, there's a genetic material called Adam, which are, which are found in sea slugs. And what they found out is that Adam could genetically alter your body so you could start doing superpowers. And so that's kind of really the premise of the game. Jack comes across Adam and uses it to fight his way out and using these powers to fight his way out. But as I said earlier, there are no limits to science. So what they found out is you could genetically modify people to let me say this right you could genetically modify people so that they can have they can grow atoms inside of them they said something like they add a bit of this they live wait hold on i'm trying to catch my thoughts because it's kind of convoluted but if if you don't have a science mind (laughs) but basically it's they want to produce more Adam but the sea slugs can only produce a certain amount what they found out that if Adam lives symbiotically within a host that person within them can produce three, time, three times the amount of Adam and that's you know, it's GMO, it's all genetically modified people and what they found out is that these little girls are the best hosts they can produce the most amount of Adam naturally within their bodies so you see where this is also going and. One of the main jobs of these little sisters is to go around Rapture, find the dead bodies which have Adam inside, and start uh, collecting the Adam out of them. So that makes them a high-value target for other citizens who are obsessed with this Adam power. That Adam has almost become a drug. It has completely—it's a—it's an epidemic within the city where everyone is obsessed with Adam because Adam not only gives you power but it seems to give these people a high like when you meet these characters you're like I don't know if you're like a zombie or you're just really fucking high they're just really high <laughs> and that's uh and yeah so you navigate through this hellscape and you try to get out that's the whole point of the game okay yeah so there's a huge plot twist and I decided not to talk about it if you decide to play the game I strongly suggest go play it or if not go YouTube it because if I talk about this plot twist, it actually descends into another conversation about free will and the philosophy behind that, and I'm just I'm just not ready to have a conversation right now, um, not because I can't, because that's not the point of this episode right now. <laughs> but that's it's a fascinating conversation that you could find videos on it on YouTube. There's I think the first one that pops up is the one I watched, and it's pretty good. It's pretty pretty good, and I suggest you go watch that if you want to understand the philosophy of this video game or the philosophy is trying to tell you. Okay, but let's uh, but let's focus on the villain, Andrew Ryan. So not a lot is given to us about Andrew Ryan. All we really know about him is the audio that was given to us in Beginning of the Game, where he explains his philosophy for Rapture, in which he describes that he became uh, tired or upset with the constant intervention of capitalism, the Catholic Church, or uh, communism. So he hated all of that, and he wanted to build a city where it could be built for independent people, independent artists and scientists, where they could do what they want without limitations. So when you see all these things where he talks about uh, the city of rapture, how he envisions it, it's it reigns very strongly of libertarianism and also of objectivism. So with libertarianism, basically, at his very principle is that every person is their own sovereign individual, meaning that. Anyone could do whatever they want as long as they don't impede or hurt others. So if I were to engage with you, and let's say we do things that other people might find hurtful. Let's say you and I are playing hockey, ice hockey, we're both getting hurt, but we both like it. But we agree to that because that's a, we're consenting to play this game of hockey, so that's why it's fine, right? That's sort of libertarian in its nutshell. It's individual freedom without limits. But also with reason. I, I guess that's the best way of putting it. Uh, objectivism is uh, there's a lot to it, and the most basic way I guess that I that I understand it is the things you see are what they are. Meaning, if you see a flower, it's just a flower. Sometimes you see a flower, it can conjure up a positive memory or or whatever, right? All there's a lot of association, cultural or personal personal or emotional associations you put onto that flower. But in objectivism, the flower is what it is. It's just there to serve its purpose in nature who it doesn't matter you know how you feel about it because that's irrelevant. So that's kind of objectivism in a way. so that's that's the best way I've understand it. And when you see Andrew Ryan and the best way to understand Andrew Ryan, not so much as an, a unique person, but the personification of these of objectivism and libertarianism. And that's who he is, Andrew Ryan. And I guess in a way, the game is trying to tell you why that doesn't work. Well, at least I don't think uh, this is why I think objectivism and libertarianism doesn't work. And I'll talk about it with Andrew Ryan he kind of is the architect of his own demise. When I think about this character, he was running away from the surface world to create his own little utopia of science, wealth, and arts, and something just you know completely void of religion or any of the social systems that he deems as failures or experiments that you know completely failed on the surface, leading to more corruption. But when you when you look at his motivation of creating the city, to me, I'm like anyone who has a big enough ego to create an own city it can only it can only lead to one thing if not treaded properly you know if he goes there he kind of goes there as an experiment to you know create this utopia but anyone with the intent of utopia often are blinded from the distinction from a dystopia although in the beginning of rapture might seem a beautiful thing he didn't seem to have the foresight of what was going to happen you know he praises capitalism and thinking that everyone's gonna benefit but there was still a working class people poor people that lived in a city and what does that say about human nature you know you go to the depths of the ocean to run away from it all so you could do your own thing and yet the same bullshit comes up again that's what I find fascinating and also how in the parallels of having a city deep underwater and that city is dedicated to the deepest imagination for you to, you know, bring up to life. You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of like the movie Inception where you have that that one idea, that one unique idea that some people might say was a revelation that God gave it to you. In this city, they encourage you to make that a reality if you can. And, like I said, there are limits for reasons. And I think that's one thing I loved about this game is... You know, is there is there really such thing as freedom? I don't know. But the set, the other game, Bioshock Infinite, kind of ta- it tackles the same theme, very similar theme, but it's com- it's on the complete other spectrum. It it, it changes it up in terms of um, motivation of the of the characters and the setting and and the context. 1960s underwater city to a 1920s city that floats in the sky. Uh, what a contrast! Bioshock Infinite is one of my favorite games of all time, not because of the time travel thing. I'll get into that, which when I mean I'll get into it, I'll explain why I don't want to talk about that either. But it's the game that, the game that made me realize that I could really start thinking outside the box in terms of writing. When I, was in, when I was doing my undergraduate degree in religion at Concordia University, I took a class called Cults in North America. And one of the classes, she invited the Prof Simony Holt, probably one of the best North American, one of the best scholars in North American cults. one North American cults and new, new religious movements. She's honestly one of the best. And it's a crime that she's not being recognized for that. But anyway, she was teaching this class and she brought in a guest lecturer and he was talking about video games. And religion in video games are sort of the tensions of religion in video games and how are mainstream religions going to deal with that and all that stuff, right? Like sort of like this new frontier a new way of thinking about how religions are being expressed. And this video game has inspired, really inspired my MA thesis on discussing, well, MA thesis my master's guided research paper, but it has really inspired me to really look at religion video games. I owe whatever academic career I have or don't have, I owe it to this game. I really do. So for that reason, I won't talk too much about the story (laughs) because I've done it a lot. But I'll give you the basic idea of what happens in the game and sort of the things that caught that that spoke to me. I'll contextualize everything I'm saying. I'll I'll try to do my best to hold your hand through this for those who are unaware of the game. So the game starts as you play as Booker DeWitt. Booker DeWitt is Booker do it is a broke ex-Pinkerton agent clearly dealing with PTSD when you start the game you're just on a You're on like a rowing boat and you're going to a, you're going to a lighthouse You're going to a lighthouse on a rowing boat essentially the same way that the first game starts and All you know is that he is offered an opportunity in erasing his debt Whatever this debt is we have no idea that but that doesn't matter and the debt by erasing this debt You're given an objective which is to retrieve a girl from the city of Columbia. But the game keeps saying the same phrase over over again. Retrieve the girl and erase her debt. Retrieve the girl and erase her debt. So it's something to that to that effect. And you don't know who this girl is. You just have a picture. You said go get her. It's basically it's basically a Super Mario game. <laughs> it's go for point A to point B, get the girl and then get out. It's exactly kind of like Super Mario. It's a classic setup. But that doesn't make the game bad or simple or backwards it's it's not about that it's really about the story around it you know and this is um this is the point where i struggle i just said that i want to talk to you about the story but it's kind of a- impossible impossible to talk about the story without talking about time travel it gets very convoluted and it gets um i had to watch YouTube videos about it just to get certain things straight but at the same time There's a lot of people who hated the science of the time travel aspect in this video game. They thought it was kind of like a cop-out or that was a little too easy. But the game does that on purpose because it's trying to emphasize the point of free will once again. This game is always about free will. So that being said, I'm going to talk about the city itself. Because the city of Columbia in this game is kind of a character on its own. And I'll also talk about the guy who founded the city of Columbia. His name is Zachary Comstock. Uh, fascinating character, fascinating city in a somewhat disturbing way. Uh, but it's when you enter the city of Columbia, it's the most, I think, is one of the most scenic and most, at the time, I thought was jaw dropping when I saw it because it was so beautifully displayed. So, as I said earlier, you get to this, I said earlier, you get to this White House, and instead of getting into a submarine, you get into this like, uh, I don't know this like this space shuttle or whatever <laughs> that takes you up into the sky and it brings you to the city. And when you enter the city, it's like it's it's beautiful. It's pastel colors, bright lights. It just it's really inviting and really relaxing. And then once you, once a uh, craft lands in the city, it descends into like an elevator and they start playing this gospel song. If anyone knows that Johnny Cash song, "Will the Circle Be Unbroken," it's that but except it's their rendition and it's all done co- it like through a choral choir whatever and it's it's beautiful it's really what is the word harmonious no it's not harmony it's serenity it, it's very serene and it's it's beautiful it I can't get over how beautiful it's it's done cuz for anyone who grew up christian that part is, it will resonate with you in a weird way cuz you, you, that's very familiar it's very familiar all of that stuff and interesting enough, when you want, when you enter the city, there's only one way in, and that way in is through baptism. You are forced to baptize yourself as a character because Booker DeWitt's just there to do a job. He doesn't care about this stuff. So he forces himself to get baptized, and that's how you enter the city, meaning this city is exclusive to believers only. And fun fact, and you figure out within the first two hours of the game is that this city is also fucking racist. It, 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 like, this city is... Is like a private golf club for white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. That's essentially what this huge city is. It's it's beautiful. You know, private golf courses are gorgeous, but you you're not white. You can't get in. You're not a believer. You're not, you know, you can't get in. Obviously, I'm not saying today's private golf clubs are like that. Today's private golf clubs are, you know, um invite only. I believe so. They're not racist today. I officially maybe. <laughs> but, but it's it's fascinating because they it's the city displays all of american self-exceptionalism yet it hates the america it hates the contemporary america that they find themselves in they reject the world they reject the entire world they keep calling united states because the city floats this united states is right below them and they ca- always refer to united states as a sodom below the sodom below if you're christian carries very significant significance <laughs> very significant significance very good writing and and the reason why it the reason why that that language is strong is because it comes from the story in genesis and the book of genesis so lot the cousin of abraham or was a brother oh wow i can't believe i'm forgetting that i'm pretty sure it's cousin I feel like they're cousins. Anyway, so let's say they're cousins. Lot lived in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, him and his wife. He had two daughters and a wife, and that was his family. And two angels, after visiting Abraham, went to go visit him and giving them a warning from God and saying, uh, Lot, you have you and your family must leave the city because God will destroy it. The city is so filled with sin, it must be destroyed. You know. But you being the only righteous person or righteous family, uh, you must leave the city and there's an interesting part in the story that happens and it's always the one that people especially atheists like to bring out and it's um, the part when the townspeople wanted to rape the angels but then Lot in compromise offered his two daughters to the townspeople saying you cannot rape our guests but you could rape my, you know, my daughters because I own them that's kind of the rationale and the whole some people find that uh, disturbing, rightfully so. Some people find that you know any other adjective or synonym. But the truth is that the the moral of the story it wasn't about that this actually happened. If you believe it happened really, then that's fine. There's who cares? You know that's what you believe in. That's fine. But the moral of the story was about how to be a good host. It was about protecting the guests, the two angels, not so much the daughters. The daughters are part of the family. Their job is to protect the guests as well. And at the most extreme circumstances, if you must rape me to protect my guests, do so. Which is a hard pill to swallow for anyone, to, you know. But in today's time, listening to that moral, that story is kind of a, It's harsh. But, but that's the extreme of Sodom and Gomorrah of those people. Because the point of the story wasn't to say that Lot was a bad person, but it was more of to demonstrate the extremes. How far will you go? And knowing ancient jewish writers especially ancient jewish uh, jewish rabbis that's like christian priests but um they almost from what my years of studying judaism whatever few classes that i took in my masters and in my undergrad the that whole point was to sort of demonstrate certain things like laws or or social norms or mores to its furthest extreme that if it's written in a bible you must go to that extent if you want to protect your guest but also contextualize the historical time of when people are right reading this Bible. Okay. So Lot lived in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah with his two daughters and wife. And one day, two angels, after visiting Abraham, or at the time his name was Abram, visited Lot, warning him, saying that God was going to destroy the city, the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But as Lot and his family are the only righteous family, the angels... Uh, warned him to leave, leave the city before it's destroyed But while that was happening Townspeople became curious and started knocking on Lot's door And said, uh, Lot, who are your guests? We would like to know them Know them, it, as is written in today's modern English Actually really means rape and When you go through the translation, that means rape So they wanted to get to know the the angels But Lot offered his two daughters But apparently his two daughters weren't good enough And they wanted the angels But the moral of that story was about the display not It was it was to display Lot as a good host to protect his guests by any means necessary, by even offering his two daughters. Everyone would see that as morally irrepre- irreprehensible, but it's just to demonstrate an extreme circumstance of how far should one go to protect their guest because in ancient Jewish tradition, that is probably one of the most important things to do is to protect your guest and to be the best host. So you're probably wondering why my talking about this uh, story in the in the, of the old testament in the book of genesis and how is this related to the video game and what you know what's the point of going over this story and somewhat and not somewhat the somber story you know that's quite gory and sad and disturbing and you have to understand that for religious people who use violence or go to that extreme uh for the use of violence to them these concepts and ideas are all founded they're all very legitimate you know there's um because for them, what's happening right now—the human earth—is not is important. Yes, but what's more important is what's happening above in the greater spiritual universe to usher in this new Jerusalem, to usher in this new age of peace. Violence must be done. Uh, it, it's necessary. And if if there's anything that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah has displayed is that God is giving justification for a clean slate of any city that has gone to awry. If you think about the city. It's gone. No, it doesn't exist. There's no archaeological records of it anywhere. I mean, there is. There are ancient ruins that have been found in Jerusalem that a lot of scientists and a lot of historians and archaeologists uh, feel strongly that this is where San Magomorrah is, but there's no real evidence to suggest that. But again, so why all of this? Why bring up a very real religious story and attach it to a game but if you look in the video game like Bioshock they use that language of Sodom and Gomorrah and then drowns drowning in the mountains of flame or you know anyway but that story was also to display the gravity of how dirty morally dirty Sodom and Gomorrah is and that is the same language that the city of Columbia and its leader Zachary Comstock refers to the United States below that's fucking Sodom and Gomorrah that is the worst that is you know like it needs to be destroyed, it needs to be taken care of and that's when you kind of have someone like Zachary Comstock come through, Zachary Comstock his past is sketchy Um, when you play the game, you start learning about his past he was he's a veteran, he fought at he fought at Wounded Knee I believe, or Wounded Knee which was um, if you do not know indigenous history in, in, in the United States, it's atrocious what happened i think 200 unarmed indigenous people were killed in the snow by the u.s army i think that's yeah it was that little bighorn i think is where custard was defeated anyway and he was there and then in the game they kind of display wounded nina defeat of the of the plains indigenous people as a major victory this is god's will you know They would say, like, you know, they would use racist language, obviously, of the 1920s to describe how, you know, the savagery, and the heathenry of the indigenous people, right? To say that we are the rightful people and we are here to lay claim to land that doesn't belong to you but to us because God gave it to us. And that is very much the American mentality of manifest destiny. Like, you're in our way. Get the fuck out. This is ours. You know, and that's literally what they did. They put them reservations. They tried killing them off, and also they talk about quashing of the, you know, quashing the boxer rebellion, uh, like putting down the boxer rebellion, which is uh, going back to this game. So, Zachary Comstock is a veteran of two atrocious battles or two very PTSD worthy battles, very similar to Booker Booker Dewitt and you could tell that when he comes back his mind, he comes back to America distressed, mentally unstable I mean it was kind of extreme what he's seen and he was baptized and he, I think in the game he says on that day when I was baptized you know, he weight came off his shoulder and he was given a vision and so on and so forth and it creates his own religion uh, the religion that he creates floating in the sky is very similar has very early Mormonism vibes you know, whites only colored people are colored people are sinful because white is pure and displays morality i think there's something something written in the book of mormon that says something to the effect that black skin equates to sin today's mormons obviously fixed all of that and addressed all of that but that was at the time a very a very obvious time and this city displays a very similar theology you know, Zachary Comstock is the sole leader And everything he says, you know, is, is God, is gold And he is the prophet The founding fathers of America are seen as, like, saints You know, again, kind of blending in American patriotism and ex- self-accessionalism Mixed with religious fervor In the same ways that if the pilgrims that got off the boat in New England ran shit today Like, that's kind of what it is because the the pilgrims that came off the Mayflower were Puritans and Puritan Protestantism is very pure, but it's also very it's very conservative. They have a they have their own it's it's a lot of American culture is rooted in Puritan Christianity. Which again, I'm not gonna talk too much about that here because that's an entire podcast on its own. There's a lot to go over. But let's talk a little more about the city. As I said, it was nice colors, there's propaganda everywhere talking about how Zachary Comstock's great. And, it, and also about how they also keep talking about a philosophy that the seed of the prophet it, this is in the game and I'm not even reading it because I've read this so many times the seed of the prophet will drown the world of man in flames something to that effect I thought I remembered it correctly but yes the seed of the prophet shall drown shall drown the world of men in flames and if it's that I mean that's very fire and brimstone message saying that you know, it's apocalyptic it's world rejecting it's saying that the world below is a mistake and we need to destroy it clean slate is essentially what they're advocating for we got to clean slate all of this and that's sort of their philo- that's sort of their th- baseline theology is that we are the chosen people we are the j- new Jerusalem we are the city on the hill the shining beacon to the world and you below are destroying that so you are in our way and we will do what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah we will destroy United States and that kind of happens in the game. But it's And then it gets into whole time travel aspect and all this uh, back to the future nonsense. Not nonsense, but it's just, I don't want to get into that. But the city is constantly showing itself as beautiful, 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 nice colors. Everyone's so happy. Everyone's on dates. Everyone's picnicking. It's like, you know, like La Belle Epoque in Paris. It, it kind of looks like that. But then when you go deeper into the game, when you keep playing it and you go Down into the depths of the city, you start seeing black people, Irish people, Chinese people, and they are relegated to working class forever. It's a caste system. They're relegated to working class forever because they're not white. Now, many of you would say, but the Irish are white. Why why aren't they in the club? Two reasons. At that time, well, many reasons. At that time, the Irish were seen as dirty, and they're also Catholic, so that's a no-no. And for Protestants and Catholics, that beef has been forever, kind of like Shias and Sunnis. It's not the same kind of beef, but the the intensity of the time was quite, kind of similar if you want to compare it to Shia and Sunnis today. But also another thing you have to consider is that if you do a little bit of history digging and see the immigration policies of America in the 1920s, it was very social Darwinistic that the people who would get full citizenship and have an easier time immigrating to the states were other white people. But white people meaning specifically Anglo-Saxons. Anglo Saxons meaning people from England. And maybe Scottish people too. And maybe the Welsh. They get like they get in somehow, sometimes. But but not the Irish. The Irish are kinda they're like second or third I would say on the on a totem pole top being white anglo-saxons and then you got the irish and then it's like west northern europeans western europeans oh no now then it's irish and southern europeans on like the fourth level and then you get like eastern europeans then you get jews and then it's like every other ethnicity that's and this city is following exactly that same mentality because it is of its time when this game is happening this is all a fucking game. Like, this is the craziest thing is that when you start digging more into the game and start seeing how it reflects real life, you start realizing that does art really mimic real life? The more I look at this game and I'm like, but this is this happened. This really happened. And now I'm playing it in a fictional way. You know, you know what I mean? Like, that's that's weird. It's like it's like saying, I want to see when. It's like someone coming up saying, I want to see when the Turks invaded and took over and conquered Istanbul, but I want to play as the Greeks, you know? You know what I mean? Like, except let's not make it a Constantinople, let's change, uh, change scenery, but it's the same thing. But you get to play that, and the game quickly became a history lesson to me when I started playing it. I was like, this is, because only games do you have this interactive component that you get to somewhat live that experience. As I said earlier in the podcast, these games do a fantastic job in transporting you to these worlds. Ken Levine, the writer of these games, did a fantastic job in not only explaining and trying to tell you a message of free will, which again, I don't get into, which I feel like I should have, but I decided not to for a very good reason. And once you play that game, you're there. You are Booker DeWitt. You are Jack. You, You... you want to end this game you become emotionally invested because you know it's the acting becomes very good but not only the acting the storytelling becomes compelling then the music becomes even better and then just your all your sensories are just hooked into this one game and you become that guy for a moment two hours you decide to play of the game you are that guy for two hours so but why but why Bioshock? Out of everything, to start with, why Bioshock? Why tackle two games with a somewhat convoluted story and very convoluted details when it comes to science to talk about? I could have just started this podcast with Super Mario, or I could have started this podcast with Call of Duty, or whatever. But when when you see those games, kind of like Call of Duty, you don't really you kind of I see them as like pop songs. You know what I mean? Like when you look at Justin Bieber, Selena Gomez, whoever a lot of people would scoff say oh, that isn't really art but who cares if it's good it's good right but that's kind of how people see call of duty like some of the more gamer snobs would see it as like oh, whatever that's like bro games that's, that's not a like real video games but it's fun who gives a shit like right like I'm here to have fun granted don't get caught with the microtransactions that's 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 thievery So I decided to choose these two games because, as I said earlier, they're they're games that reconceptualize really the way I think. If I could talk briefly about gameplay, it was co- these games were unique of his time. Like you never, you rarely had a game where you get to hold a gun and have superpowers at the same time, and you get to upgrade your weapon and upgrade your superpowers, and you go through the game kind of feeling like God at times. Which at the end you should feel like God because you worked hard to become God, really, and but the, but the game is constantly beating you with what this you know what, what it's presenting to you this the you know the city and everything you're constantly navigating through a city and you're constantly thinking to yourself it's like how did it get to this point how can these ideas of utopia get to this point because at least with not at least with columbia that was also another version of utopia. It's a, you know, a new Jerusalem. That's a very apocalyptic language. A new Jerusalem only emerges at the end of uh, judgment, at the end of the apocalypse. You know, once the world's ravaged, a new Jerusalem shall arise, and there will be a thousand years of peace until the world ends. And that's kind of, you know, Book of Revelations. That's what it says. And Colombia presents itself as a city right now. We are that city, and we will survive, and we will bring peace. But that idea of bringing peace, you don't bring peace, peace just happens. It just happens. You know, you could bring the intent of peace, but you can't literally forcibly bring peace because that leads to dystopia and you, you know, you fall down a rabbit hole, people getting killed and people who don't fall into, who don't fall in line. You got to get rid of them. And these two cities, exactly the same. Colombia suppresses the the ethnic people. They suppressed the black people, the Irish, and the Chinese. And what happened? They revolted. There, there was a, a race riot, a race war in Colombia, if you will. But it was a race war that was really founded on economic injustice and the language that came with it. And, and in the Rapture, same thing. Except it was with, seemingly among equals that quickly went sour when, one, when one group made more money than the other. When one group gained more power than the other. And what does that say? You know, it's to me when I see these games and every time I hear people talk about utopias, I'm like, stop that. That's, there's only one way it can end it. Did, do I have that opinion because of video games? No, I mean, we've seen that in history. North Korea is not a utopia. It advertises itself as a utopia, but it's definitely not. Every communist country did that really at some point in time. And that being said, like you know, there's no there's no such thing. If we quickly abandon the idea of utopia, maybe utopia might actually come to us. And and it's kind of crazy how I get these thoughts, where these games kind of influence that thinking. You know, it, it influenced What does it really mean? What is human nature? Because these two, you know, Andrew Ryan and Zachary Comstock, the whole idea of them is that they escaped mainstream society because they they wanted freedom. They wanted freedom to do what they wanted. They wanted freedom from a world they seen as as reverse or backwards or, you know, just corrupted. And here they are doing the same thing. And it's funny because one preaches extreme religion, one it preaches extreme science. Yet it's the same. What does that say about being human? What does that say about human and politics or human and identity and, you know, all these things? Human and power. It says more about human and power. Not human empowerment, human and power, <laughs> because in the extremes, identity doesn't matter. It's really the energy you bring into it. You know, as I said, you know, as I kind of said earlier, those who preach of a utopia, utopia are often the ones that are blinded towards the distinction with a dystopia. You think you think you're bringing something nice, but you're actually bringing a piece of shit. <laughs> That's kind of what I'm trying to say, and. Some people seeing, see it as sad. But I don't think it's sad. That's why they're in video games, because hopefully we will never have to get to that point. I say hopefully, because every year brings another curveball, it seems. But that being said, at these... Bioshock Infinite, the series, just... Um, it's good writing. It really is. That's all I got to say. As someone who enjoys you know a good script from a film video game or from a book it it's really good storytelling and it it gets you so involved into the world and it it creates that ambiance and that environment where it might be it's you know it's conflict but it's inviting because you want to get to the end of it's you know resolve this problem well, what's happening here you know what happens at the end and that's and you're going to see uh, you're going to see a trend for this season cuz those are the games I like to talk about games with really good writing that seems to have brought out really strong sentimental value to people and since you've been good and listened to this entire episode so far the games i want to cover this is in no particular order these are just the games that i want to talk about this season are you know the last of us series especially the second one the second one getting such crazy reaction a lot of negative reaction which I think was a little extreme at times, but you know, uh, the Red Dead Redemption series. I fucking love Red Dead Redemption, my favorite. I'm an Asian guy who says this, but those two cowboy games are so good. And, and after that is Assassin's Creed. Assassin's Creed series are, again, I'm a fan of that. I'm a sucker for that. I keep buying the new ones. Yeah, um, and. Um, and lastly, it's not so much a single game, but this is a genre of games. I want to talk about simulation games and strategy games specifically. I might spend a lot of time in simulation games because I like those, but I feel like people who like simulation games have a very specific way of thinking and seeing the world. I'm a huge fan of City Skyline. I played a bit of Sim City and a bit of Sims. Couldn't really get into that. I used to love Roller Tycoon growing up. My sister was going crazy on Animal Crossing during the pandemic, during the lockdown, like most people were. But there's something about simulation games that, I don't know, I like. I think it's the same reason why, as a kid, I always liked trains or people who like those miniature train sets because simulation games seems to bring um, a peace of mind. I'll get more into that when we get to that uh, episode. But anyway, all this to say, there may have been parts of this podcast where I kind of went off-tangent because... There's just a lot of for me. This is just that is the way I think. Whenever one thought pres- is brought to me or is presented to me, I have ten different thoughts that uh, about that. Uh, especially with games that I spent a lot of time thinking about. You know, so forgive me if sometimes I've been distracted, but it's not that I wasn't trying. It's just this is just how I think and this is how I am. Anyway, again, thank you for listening. The just a reminder that the podcast name has changed to J Kim's Topic. So make sure to look for that. And also if you're someone who is interested in getting to video games, don't be intimidated. Just do it. You no know, like the video game community wants more people interacting. We want more positivity. I say we, but you know, the video game community wants more positivity. There's enough toxic people out there, but those people are found in very specific areas and you could easily avoid those. Like mostly from online like highly tactical online gaming, you get to find those. But If you are interested in video games, start by downloading a game on your phone and then maybe if you want to spend a little more time, a little more investment, maybe buy a console, buy a used one and start playing a few games here and there casually. I think that's a good way to get started. If you're trying to avoid but want to appreciate from a distance, thank you for listening. (laughs) That's all I got to say. Anyway, once again, from Montreal, thank you for listening. My name is Jason Kim.